Welcome to the dumbest guy in the room. I'm John Dick, founder and CEO of Civic Science, and the only male in a family of four, which means I'm pretty much always the dumbest guy in the room. Thank you for lending us your ears and your brain for another episode of our podcast. So I've sung in this rock band for 15 years. Pretty good one, actually. And there is no feeling like it. Jumping around a stage, screaming my head off with four of my best friends, the reaction from the crowd, the copious amounts of alcohol. God, I miss it. But I also miss music. The art form felt stagnant even before COVID. Now it just feels frozen. We haven't had a new sound since hip-hop took over 20 years ago. My kids are more likely to listen to music that was made before they were born. Yeah, we've had a few generational talents like Drake and Adele, but mostly it's just a blur ever since Eminem and Beyonce came along. In 2018, 46% of Americans said they followed trends and current events in music at least somewhat closely. That number bottomed out at 36% this month. During that same period, the percentage who say they are, quote, passionate about music fell nearly 20%. Maybe everything is just too crowded. We have so much content literally at our fingertips. Thanks to streaming, the number of hours we spend listening to music is up. But also thanks, or no thanks to streaming, we don't have to look for new music anymore because it's so easy to find the stuff we already know. It's kind of like politics today. Do I really want to hear something different or do I just want something predictable and affirming? The good news is if conditions ever existed for innovation in music, it's right now. Artists have had nothing to do for the last year but create, to experiment. Consumers are clamoring, especially for live music, and most of them will have plenty of money to pay for it. Over our next two episodes, we'll be exploring the state of music and its role in our lives today. We'll hear the musician's perspective from Matt Mangano, the bass player from the great Zac Brown Band. But first, we'll visit with the legendary Bob Lefsetz, author of The Lefsetz Letter and one of the most influential thought leaders not just in music, but in all of pop culture over the last 35 years. Nobody is more critical of the music industry and yet more hopeful about its future. We'll also talk to Bob about tattoos, eavesdropping on conversations in L.A., and singing out loud in our cars. So grab a pew at the Church of Bob Lefsetz and listen along with me, the dumbest guy in the room. Bob, good to be here, John. Where are you? I'm literally in Sherman Oaks, California, where I've been for a year. I've taken... uh, I view this as sort of a character issue. A lot of people would disagree with me. They said to stay home. I don't want to get it. I know a number of people who've died. And it's really pretty freaky. And one died because he didn't go to the hospital in time. The other died because family members were lax. So I've taken it very seriously, although I've been vaccinated at this point. Oh, good for you. We're, we're serious at this end, too. I have to ask, when's the last time you were on that side of the podcast table? Not that long ago. I think, you know, a month or two ago. You know, it's funny because uh, I'll do a lot of talking. And in my podcast, I tend not to. But you have me now. Well, good, good. Well, I, I'm going to feel critiqued the whole way through because you're so good at it. And uh, I feel like I'm cooking dinner for Thomas Keller or something. So, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot listening to your to your podcast, Bob. So. Look, right out of the gate, I'm going to violate a cardinal rule of being an interviewer, which is I'm going to blow my cover and say that, first of all, I'm a huge admirer of yours. I've even written about it, as you know. Uh, You've been an inspiration to me and and a lot of the work that I do. But you've also been something of a a mentor to me uh, from from a long distance, of course, of late. 
That said, I thought you were an asshole for the first 45 minutes I knew you. If you remember when that was, tell, oh, do, you remember, remember when, absolutely. Do, you, do you remember when we met, Bob? Absolutely. Doing a Grammy picks telecast for Access TV. That's right. And you scared the shit out of me. It was my first ever live TV kind of gig. And I remember I met you and we were in the makeup room and I said, hey, do you want to kind of riff a little bit about what we're going to talk about out there? And you said, absolutely not. We're not going to talk about anything. It's going to be so much better if we don't prepare. And you're 100% correct. It was the first of many things I learned from you on that show. And uh, you brought a great zeal to the conversation. I loved it. I loved it. But if, man, at first I was like intimidated by it and you've turned out to be uh, anything but an asshole. But actually, I want to start there for a minute because we did that show twice drove me nuts because we had, we couldn't predict it. I couldn't. We had predicted so many things. We predicted the Oscars. We predicted election outcomes. We couldn't predict the Grammys. And of course, the show then stopped shortly after. And I always kind of blamed us for that because we weren't able to deliver the goods. But the more I've thought about it, I think it was the Grammys fault. The Grammys feel like this microcosm for the music industry. What's your take on that? What do they mean? Do they, do they mean anything? Anymore? Okay, I've got no time for the Grammys. If you know the history of the Grammys, it was really the stepsister to the Oscars. They were never equal. And it was kind of a joke. There were all these classic cases where the wrong people won and Led Zeppelin didn't win and the Beatles didn't win and Afternoon Delight did. Certainly the new artist category was notorious as a career killer. But this guy, Mike Green, who's a musician who was head of the Atlanta chapter uh, around 1990, he became head of the Grammys actually a few years before. And he stood up to everybody before there would know he would stand up to CBS. He famously stood up to the mayor of New York and he added a level of gravitas. Also, starting with mono, uh, with MTV, we evolved into a monoculture. Therefore, what was popular was even more popular and that benefited the Grammys. Ultimately, his tenure ended and they got a sycophant in to run the organization. If you follow this closely, and it's only interesting for the politics as opposed to the Grammys themselves, is they hired a woman and then they fired her. And they literally said she wanted change too fast. I mean, come on. So if you look at the Grammys, they tried to eliminate some of the Grammy categories, but they're still close to 100. Why are there so many categories? The wannabes want to put it on their resume. The people who win or do not win at the very top record of the year, they don't really care unless they believe it's racism that's involved. Okay. But the people in categories, you know, African jazz cut in Asia, those people live for the Grammys. And in addition, it's a very small circle. So you have records that are essentially go unheard, but these people will put on their resume, Grammy nominated, et cetera. Now, then you get into who is literally voting for the Grammys, uh, block voting. If you talk to anybody outside the system, everyone rolls their eyes. People invested, primarily those who are uh, not only members of the Grammy organization, but on the boards, they'll, they take it seriously. Now, for a long time, there was block voting at the labels. I believe that still exists. They'll say, well, you know, how can that be? There's so many votes. But a lot of these categories really aren't that many votes. So there's a television show. The ratings are going down. This is we're, we're talking the week after the Golden Globes. Forget that it was virtual. It's during the winter. There's not that much going on. They did have some technical glitches. I don't believe it affected viewability that much. Ratings were horrific. About 
eight or nine years ago, 10 maybe, people watch these live events to live tweet. What people don't realize, a lot of things with social media, et cetera, it's a fad. And the live tweeting fad ended and the ratings cratered and they're never going back up. In addition, you cannot have a TV show, which is where uh, the Grammy organization gets most of their money, that appeals to everybody. And it's with CBS, which traditionally, although it was changed a little bit under the Moonves years, he lost his gig a couple of years back under Me Too, for Me Too reasons, but they skew old. So I believe it's out of touch. If we go back to your predictions, let me generalize before I go specific. If you interact with reporters for major operations and even minor ones, I, I hear from these people all the time. They know nothing. It's who, where, what, why, and when. And it makes you crazy because you have to educate them for a half an hour and they still get it wrong. Online, there's an expert in absolutely every vertical, tiddlywinks to foreign affairs. Therefore, the generalist is at a disadvantage. If you are into a specific vertical, find that person. So when we're doing the Grammy show, you're giving the perspective of your audience. Where I was coming from, okay, let me put in the music, the Grammy voter, the perception, and therefore our results were different. Right, right. No, no question about it. I think there's a microcosm here and I want to share a stat with you because you know that's what we do. So in our data, the percentage of Americans, we, we track interest in music and we track levels of interest from it's a passion to I pay attention to it. The percentage of Americans who said who describe music as a quote, a passion of theirs fell from 22% in 2016 to a low of 18% today. Now forget about the pandemic for a minute, although it's relevant. The bigger number is Gen Z. So let's call it 13 to 25. Gen Z and teens who said music is a passion of theirs was at 39% in 2016, and it's at 22% today. It's almost a, well over a 50% decline. The, most of those numbers were trending in that direction before the pandemic. They fell even worse during the pandemic. Can you think of an era, not in your life, but as far back as you can think that music was less culturally relevant than it is right now? Because that's what this data is saying. Uh, well, I thought the question was going to be different. No, I cannot think of an era where... Uh... You have to go back. It is very important that we see the Beatles as a line of demarcation. That was a unification of youth culture, youth power, and in addition, great music. If you wanted to know what was going on in the 60s, you listened to records, you listened to radio, which was not the jive radio of today. Ultimately, mainstream caught on when so many people came to Woodstock. And then in the 70s, it was really a juggernaut, both in terms of sales and impact, but we got corporate rock, we had disco, it all caved, but MTV resuscitated it. MTV really had a run of about 10 years, 1981 to 1991, but it really wasn't disrupted until 1999. So you have a lot of people in the music business saying, you, you know, you don't get it. You know, you're too old. That is not true. I always talk about the Renaissance. There was one Renaissance but they've been painting and sculpting ever since. And not that there has been great, hasn't been great stuff, but there was one time where it all came together. I say the same thing about the internet. Really, everything changed with the internet summer of 1995, really 96. This is when the public at large got on AOL. 
I remember hearing J.J. Walker on the comedy channel at Sirius doing a routine where he brought his computer home and he got a call from uh, this computer store. It needed to be upgraded, needed a new chip. That's how fast things were moving. We had the hardware era of starting with the iPod, among other things, of the early 2000s, never mind getting constantly new computers in the late 90s. That is over. That is a game of musical chairs. I'm not saying the internet is not important, but the concept of, wow, there's a new software platform, there's new hardware, that's done. Just like with music, there was a time where it was vibrant and excited, exciting. Not that it can't be again, but what people don't know is there were very few distractions at that point. You could be bored. If you're bored today, because you have stimulation in your fingertips in the handheld device, in literally all walks of life, you can talk to people, et cetera. But you could be bored. Therefore, people, and there was scarcity of product, not only music, but other things. You would sit there and listen to the records over and over. That's all you have. Starting about 20 years ago, they talk about music being in movies and TV shows, music being in video games, such that you could expose music that way. That is all true, but the interesting element is multitasking. Music is more of a sauce, a background, as opposed to foreground. Not universally, but we're talking general topics, yes. Could it once again recapture you know the big thing about music it was used to take two years to make a movie and you can make a record and put it out within a week music was more on the pulse then things flipped you know we had they had the borat movie they made they were shooting almost up until release okay where music we're going to hold it back we're going to wait for the right time to market it and the public can sense this i want to go one step further because it's something people say oh Everyone is inured to selling out, just sell out. Let's also be clear, managers, agents, labels, they don't care who the act is, just as long as there's somebody to charge. If your name is on the marquee and you screw up, your career is done. The agent just finds a new act. So the agent says, hey, I want my 10%. If you're not working, you know, make this uh, deal with uh, the soft drink company. What they don't understand when done right Music speaks to the soul of the listener. I remember there's a famous incident. It's funny how time rolls by with on 60 Minutes with Andy Rooney uh, right after Kurt Cobain uh, committed suicide. He's going on what a waste it was. And Kurt Cobain was on DGC Records, a division of Geffen Records. And I was on the phone with Eddie Rosenblatt, who ran that operation for David Geffen the next day. And he came out with a quote I've repeated again and again. Movies, when done right, are larger than life. Music, when done right, is life itself. You can't make the kind of money in music that you can in tech. A musician in the 60s and 70s was as rich as anybody in the world, except maybe some people who inherited royalty in Europe and maybe possibly Asia. Today, a musician can't be that rich. So a musician has the right to speak truth to power. I use this example all the time about six or seven years ago during the NBA playoffs, Jay-Z had a new album released only on Samsung apps. Yet I have a Samsung phone. He got paid up front. They did the advertising. He thought he won. Okay. If he had put out an anti-Samsung album, all hell would have broke loose. Everybody knows. But instead, 
you know, he's selling out to the man. Just to go a couple of other things is one very, very, very important. First and foremost, starting with a slight thing is people are constantly putting down the millennials, Gen Z, they're wimps. They got a short attention span. Horseshit. Certainly with a short attention span. They just have an incredible shit detector. You know, people call me up, listen to my album five times. Are you kidding me? It's like, I have the history of recorded music at my fingertips. This is my business. If I can make it through once, that'll be a big deal. And of course, if it's great, we're all looking for great. There's very little great out there. If we find great, we want to tell everybody about it. We want to immerse ourselves. But I think that's the problem, Bob, is it's we've got apathy, which might even be worse than anything else. They're they're not interested in music. Nothing. If it's if it if music done right is life. It's nobody's striking that chord right now. At least it doesn't appear particularly. Well, with I, I, you know, I don't need to defend the music business, but I don't really think that's true. I don't think the statistics can tell you. Let's start with a famous quote from Ahmed Erdogan, principal of Atlantic Records. Atlantic Records was sold to a company that ultimately became Warner Communications. They have the annual budget meeting and they talked to Ahmed. Well, your numbers were a little bit better. How are you going to reach your target this year? He goes, I'm going to have more hits. I'm going to have more hits. I mean, this is what the business depends on. Okay. We had Drake a couple of years ago. We had the weekend already a couple of years ago. Who is the hot act today? If there's a new act, Michael Jackson, whatever, those numbers are going to go up. I guarantee you. And music is still ubiquitous. So I think going into those change changes in numbers, you have to really be wary of drawing conclusions. Well, what if we look at the time frame? So I, I, the, the numbers that we've seen decline have declined since 2016. Okay, that, that's maybe not a coincidence, right? What happened between 2016 and 2020? Was, Trump, was, the Trump era, era, was the Trump era and the political tribalism that it really brought to the surface, was that bad for music? Was it bad for art? Had nothing to do with the statistic you just quote me, quoted me. I mean, I could talk, but you have to understand, contrary to the disinformation of the labels in the media, music is broader than ever before. Let me also use another one of my things. You'll constantly hear content is king. That is complete bullshit. Distribution is king. Okay, this is when uh, the morning show, they made a deal with Apple TV+. Plus. I never would have made that deal because they were getting all the money, but not the prominence. If you talk to true artists, their number one criterion is exposure to more people. Money is far beyond behind that. So if you're on Netflix, forget that there's a plethora of product. They have the most subscribers. You have a greater chance. In music, without going into the specifics, essentially everybody can uh, distribute at a low price. As a result, we don't have a controlled universe. You look at uh, the Spotify top 50, that is a lower percentage of overall consumption than previously. These are Spotify's numbers, not me. It's broadening out. All right, let's talk about streaming for a minute. My take on it, our data's take on it, is there's some friction. Certainly, it's made music more accessible. We've seen increase in usage, of course, because Luddites are slowly coming on board. Seems like it's been really good for for the industry, the economics of the industry arguably saved it. Maybe not as good for the art form. What do you think? Well, art form and artists are two different things. 
first and foremost, every platform, it sounds like Marshall McLuhan, does change the music. If you want to have a hit record, those people are trying to get the hooks much closer to the beginning of the song. There aren't these long intros because they're afraid of skipping. But if we just talk about, expand a little bit more. People say, what's after streaming? Nothing. It's an on-demand culture. Once you get to on-demand, maybe the name of the service might change, but it's almost like talking to a car company. You know, What's after on-demand delivery? They could contract. And this has been a little bit of a problem uh, in the COVID era. But there's, you know, if you farm everything out, you don't go beyond that. Although look at, you know, Boeing farmed everything out and it hurt them. But forgetting that contraction in music, what we find is there are many different things accessible. And for the first time ever, you're competing against the history of music. So what I say, you want to, you know, be a hard rock metal band, you have to be better than Led Zeppelin or else you're not going to get that level of ubiquity. So based on consumption, these acts don't realize that in the old days, you sold it and that was it. Now, if you create something worth hearing, you may say, well, I'm not making enough money now, but you're going to get paid for the history of, for the length of copyright, assuming it is good. We get a lot of bitching, the people who do not understand the economics in deals. The irony being some of these are household name people. This is very complicated. Let me just give you, people say, oh, I got a royalty check and it was really low. First, was it on demand or was it radio? If you get a check from Pandora, Pandora, although Pandora does have an on-demand service at this point, and most of it is radio. Or if you get Spotify radio, it's a different rate. Was it listen Spotify free ad-supported tier? Okay. Okay, the publishing. How many other writers were there? Did you take in advance? Do you own the publishing? What is your net? When do, when do they have to account to you? Okay. You know, you get email from people and they say, well, you know, I got a million streams and I only made this. A million streams is nothing today. There are people with a billion streams. So you have all these people who were making money in the old days, supported by the record companies. They got advances, et cetera. What they never say, and I know household name access, they never got paid royalties. They never earned back. Okay. Not to mention the fact you can make the music for free on your computer. You can market it for free. It's a heyday of artists. However, it is harder and harder to move up the food chain. Now, if we talk about the art in general, we're still in a period of transition. It took us 15 years to figure out distribution, 10 years to get Spotify, another five or six to get everybody on board. As Michael Eisner famously said, 10% of the people will never pay. Forget them. And it's like Michael Rapino says, the people bitching about concert ticket prices, they expect to be able to buy a front row seat at, at uh, face value for every show. That's just not the way it works. Those are the biggest bitchers. So overall income, forgetting COVID affecting uh, live shows, this is a heyday for musical artists. In terms of the music, since we now have distribution down, the focus will be on the music. We're in an evolutionary phase and we are far ahead of this. And one of the problems with all these uh, video services in music, you pay one price, you get it all. You could choose to be with Amazon or Spotify or Apple where, you know, it's being like pecked to death by ducks in the video world. Bob, if you look at 
what streaming enables, which is the same thing streaming and television, streaming TV enables, the analytics that are being created from the sheer volume of, of music that's being run and, and playlists that are being created, do you worry that music becomes algorithmic at that point? Does, does, does streaming then start to do to music what the internet or Facebook did to journalism where you're, you're gaming your product for the distribution? Because I would argue I see that happening to some extent already where the, the game's about being on the playlists. And so you're seeing a lot of crossover collaborations between country artists and EDM artists because it's going to land them on the largest multitude of different places. Are they, do you worry that that becomes a gameable system and that that's going to start to drive more of the art than art itself? Not really. Okay. Because if you, what you have to know, people who've created the iconic records of all time don't even know how to read music. Okay. And all of the iconic records are outliers. They're different from what came before. This is basically a question of AI. Certainly AI is pushing the limits. They say, well, we can add more human elements. I don't think so. So are there people, like what you call gaming the system is really me tooism. Let's use a good example, Nirvana 30 years ago. There were other grunge shall we say they call that genre bands but once they were successful every label had to have that until it burned out and then something else came along that is the history of creative art let's talk about the playlist the problem with these platforms and i know these people is they are not created by music people they're created by technologists there is this concept that the playlist is very important Playlists only service passive listeners. If you're an active music fan, you can't make it through the playlist. I mean, I have to course through these for work. It's unbearable. Okay. You don't want to give me 50 country songs or 50 of this. It's like, give me five. So if you're a fan, you're picking and choosing. If we're talking about working the playlists, yes, I am worried about the major labels influence with the streaming outfits. The streaming outfits want to have a relationship with them. So they can't be completely, they could, but they don't choose to be uh, standing aside. But they say there's no money being exchanged. So the record companies controlled radio. However, at this point in time, there's really two businesses. Businesses that are driven by adoption on streaming services and businesses that are not. So when you look at the so-called charts, and uh, it's mostly hip-hop and pop, yes, playlisting does affect that. However, if you talk to any of these companies, you can get it on the playlist. But you talk about analytics and uh, data, they will immediately drop you if it doesn't react. And the other thing is they can tell you whether an album is successful within a couple of hours based on the skip rates. So yes, you can have an advantage, okay? This is essentially push going back to the language of 20 years ago. But at least, you know, there's quantifying is hard because there's so many records, many of which are not even listened to on streaming services. There is an unbelievable in business in people who don't even give a shit about the playlist. Their music is available, okay? You talk to the Tedeschi Trucks band, you know, the two uh, principals in that band, husband and wife. They have a record deal. They make records. And if people want to listen to them, that's great. But they're making the money on the road. They're not sitting there calculating. Their audience is looking for improvisation. I could name 
hundreds of acts like this. And that is their attraction because people know when they're getting the formula. My, you said something earlier that's very um, pervasive, I think, across media. My, my 17-year-old, well, soon-to-be 17-year-old daughter, her birthday is in two weeks. She asked for her birthday for us to, if we would buy her the, uh, the library of the office on Amazon Prime, the full show. She's 17. That show's what, 20 years old now at this point? I don't even right. know. I lose track of time. You made the point about music today isn't just competing with music today. If you, like you said, if you're going to be a heavy metal band, you're competing with Led Zeppelin. What is that doing to the value of the intellectual property, the publishing, the, 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 the music? Does the, does the writer of the music now have more power because, or, or more financial power because of the ownership of that intellectual property? How's that going to change now that music is essentially timeless? Okay. Prior to this internet craziness, almost all the ownership of the copyright in the recording was owned by the major labels. They owned it. A few acts had reversions after 25 years or so. Most do not. Okay. Without getting into the major label paradigm of what they sign, et cetera, you basically have, you know, a number of rights, the right. You are the recording artist, what you get compensated for that, whether or not you own the copyright, there is the song. Did you write it? Did you own it? Because a lot of people deal with the publisher. But that's, the publishing is a penny's business. As are royalties to a great degree. The business flipped. It used to be the tour was a way to advertise the album. Now the album is a way to advertise the tour. You know, they always say, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going out, we're waiting for the new album to go on sale for the tour. I say, well, you know, that makes no sense. No one's going to buy the album. No one's going to sit. They're going to review it. People are going to see ads, going to make them think of the band. We don't even give a shit if they listen to it. So in terms of the value, you have to understand these are musicians. They're much more sophisticated than they used to be because there's a ton of information. Definitive book being by Don Passman, everything you want to know about the music business. It's got a, it's got a title like that. It really goes through. So people are not screwed in the same they were in the 60s and 70s. But if you're a great musician, you couldn't even show up at the 7-Eleven on time. This is the only thing you can do. You're not good when, when it comes to dollars. The only person I remember was good was Steve Miller, Steve Miller band. All these other people, they're getting screwed left and right. Not to mention the fact, even if you have the money, you know, I always say, well, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't go bankrupt. Yeah, but I don't have that kind of money. I'm not one of those artists. I couldn't come up with that stuff. So I know people who've bought a number of houses, gotten themselves in debt, and then sold their assets. Then there are people I was dealing with one of the big companies, Roundhill Music, Josh Gruse, who's the principal there. And he, well, you know, I buy these rights. It's a big thing now. Everybody here is reading about this big company, Hypnosis. Roundhill's another one. You know, Bob Dylan deal with Universal. And okay, he sold the, I won't talk to the specific band, but he was talking in general. He earns the advance back in seven to 10 years. And these acts are in their fifties. I would never sell it. I'm going to live for another 30, 40 years. But people have short-term thinking. Never mind the obvious. If you sell it, there are taxes. And where are you going to get that rate of return? People are unsophisticated, stupid. And we live in an era more than ever, where people want short-term gratification. I want that. I mean, let's go into some of the still. People make it in music and they buy a number of automobiles. One, you can only drive one at one, one at a time. 
And except for a very, 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 very thin layer of exotics, they're depreciating assets. It's like, you know, your money lighting a match to it. All right. So the musician. Musician's not an entrepreneur or is a musician an entrepreneur? Some are, some aren't. What's the difference? You're an entrepreneur. Okay, let's start with the musicians. First, you have to, you know, you have to bifurcate here. People who are actually musicians and people who really just want to be famous. But let's just talk someone who literally plays an instrument. First thing you do is make the music, whether it be alone or with a group of people. Then you seed it amongst your friends and spam everybody saying you got to pay attention to it. Everybody is so overburdened with the avalanche of information, they ignore that. So when people email me about this, and you can't respond to these people generally. I've learned that lesson because 10% of the public is literally insane, but you just don't know what 10% it is. Someone could be totally reasonable, and then you find out they're insane. But when you interact with these people, if you do, you tell them, I don't want to hear your girlfriend loves it. I don't want to hear your mother loves it. Tell me that they sent it to other people and they like it. Okay. Which is why in the music business, everybody's looking at data. So, that's one way to make it, trying to increase your numbers. And yes, you can manipulate those to a certain degree, and, but it's better than the old days where everybody used to lie. People say, I sold 100,000 records. How many is that really? Maybe 4,000. Or a friend of mine is no longer with it. Interesting guy, Jerry Heller. He had uh, Ruthless Records. And uh, someone was doing a book about him. He said, how many records did you sell Ruthless Records? And he said, 70 million. Like I said, 70 million, really? And Jerry looked at me, he goes, my company, my number. So in any event, you have this, if you want to get a record deal, we have Lil Nas S, et cetera. It's about generating numbers and attention online. If you're a musician, it's about who you know. You have to have a band. You have to have backup players. To get a gig, you have to know other people. Even the people who are the biggest pricks and legendary pricks, believe me, they were nice in the beginning. And unless they're literally superstars, the fact that they're a prick might hurt them in the end. I and mean, if you talk to any record company, they say, I don't care how good you are. I have to work with you. Is there somebody we can work with? So. Well, I don't know. Yes. There's, there's not much that you just said that I could not have uh, inserted the word entrepreneur for a musician, right? So much of that's true. There's the grind. There's who you know. There's the people you surround yourself. It's whether you're an asshole to work with or not. And, and I think we sort of conflate the idea of musician today. You said it right. It's a bifurcation because you've got the people who are actually going to grind and play the gigs on the weeknights to get their bands seen and they're going to work on their art form. And then there's the people who are trying to win American Idol and hoping to put a video on YouTube and go viral. Right. Those are, those are entrepreneurs. Those are lottery tickets. Right? right. So, so musician as entrepreneur. Uh, I also think there's a great lesson there. Your point earlier about distribution, which is a good segue. Cause I want to talk about you for a little bit. You're a king of distribution in that your, your left sets letter, which I read religiously, as you know, uh, you don't charge anybody for it. Right. Right. You know, and I can't imagine, um, you know, the hours of week that you need to put into it. What's the game? Why do you do it? Oh, okay. I started the newsletter in 1986. 
uh, essentially to get another job in the music business. Only 35th, 35th year anniversary, by the way. That's true. Uh, although I don't celebrate that stuff. I'm not looking for marketing angles. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I constantly do things opposite of how everybody else does them. But it, just stopping there for a second, the people at the top of the company can hear a contrary opinion. Everybody else below is drinking Kool-Aid. So I charge for the newsletter. What happened was in the year 2000, there's a confluence of events. Random House is publishing a book about called The Operator by David Geffen, about David Geffen. I have friends who work at the company. I have the book a weekend before anybody else. I read the book. I go to a conference to this day, uh, music business in Aspen every year. This was the first year, 1999, 2000, that they gave email addresses. So I wrote an article and I sent it to the Aspen people. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. I start to hear from all these people. I know who they are, but they're not subscribers to my newsletter. and They're not Aspen people. That's when I experience virality. There are a lot of things that I experience first that everybody knows about today. The internet hate, et cetera. I would go and tell people, this is what's going on. They have no idea. Now even Jimmy Kimmel does, uh, you know, uh, bad tweets or whatever. Mean tweets, mean tweets, mean tweets. Yep. So all of a sudden you see this, People want to, you know, subscribe. I know from the past, once you're charging, A, that's a mental decision just to pay, lay the money down. B, what is the number? So for what I did was I saw this instant reaction and I could distribute via the internet and all these crazy great things were happening. Going, you know, philosophically, I said, okay, I'm going to wait until everybody's subscription runs out. And then I will open it to pretty much everybody because no one will be get screwed. I waited five years to automate the subscription, which was brilliant in hindsight because, you know, I'm dealing with all this feedback. You literally can discuss it with no one. I'm talking to my psychiatrist, talking to people. They have no idea what I'm talking about because I'm at like the bleeding edge. And so certainly from the time that I opened it up, all kinds of opportunities came my way. If you talk about an entrepreneur, you have to know when to charge. The techies do this right. Let's get the audience first, then figure out the business model or how to charge. Okay. I can tell you point blank. I make a ton more money not charging. In a world, why would you prevent somebody from being exposed to it? There's a site called Patreon. Guy who runs it was in a band called Pomplamoose with his girlfriend and then wife. This thing is such a joke. It's like Kickstarter. Okay. If you can get your album made on Kickstarter, which is not even really in so much of a paradigm anymore, or you can gain an audience on Patreon. Fantastic. Just don't expect it to go any bigger. Okay. Just because you raise the money on Kickstarter doesn't mean anybody's interested. Patreon, that's a walled garden. People can't share because then you get pissed off. You have inherently micro-sized yourself. When the key is to be so great that people will forward your stuff, that's how you make new friends, uh, new fans. People who talk about the money first, I immediately dismiss them. It's like going back to this Aspen conference. I remember in the early 2000s, we were going to form a business. We have a big meeting. There's about 200 people there. The first thing in the debate for the next 45 minutes is, 
how are we going to divide up the money? It's like, I couldn't believe it. My mindset is completely different. And in addition, the, the power, I can never make as much money, you know, as Mark Zuckerberg, but I can get, you know, I can reach anybody I write about. I reach, I write something about the people. They fucking read it. They can impact them. Okay. A, there's the power. B, there are a lot of people, my heroes who, you know, I get to hear in response. That's worth more than, you know, you can't go for the short-term money. Yeah. We, uh, we kind of live by that credo here as well. We, we publish and, and, and uh, it brings the opportunity to us, which I think, especially today, because there's so much, you don't, you, in our business, you don't, you don't cold call your way into a C-level executive at a top 100 brand. You don't do that anymore. They don't reply to emails from strangers. We, we publish, we broadcast, we rely. And, and even in my, my uh, left sets letter knockoff, I do every week, twice as many people read it through forwards than actually receive it in the email. Right. And that's, that's the sign for us that we've hit, we've hit a chord is that it, the distribution that it created. So right. I want to, I want to, you mentioned, so you started this in 1986, which happens to be in the middle of that heyday you mentioned of MTV. Right. Um, I know in the early days, cause I've, I've, I've read, I've, I've read other interviews you've done about this. You were mostly writing about albums and artists at the time, uh, probably much more music oriented today if you, if you read the last 10 left sets letters, maybe a third of them were centered on music. You've, de- you've described yourself as a cultural critic, a culture critic. Well, you said I didn't describe myself, but you could say that I am. Yeah. Okay. I did. How podcast. did that evolve? And, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a couple okay. of things. AI turned 60 and a lot of things that I thought were meaningful became meaningless. B, I was on a crusade that everyone could access the music for one low monthly price. That ultimately was Spotify happened. And I was doing a podcast with Pete Tong, who was maybe the first of the, he and Paul Oakenfold were like the first legendary EDM DJs. And Pete has a radius. He's, you know, he's an entrepreneur himself, but he still spins records. And I asked him what his biggest, payday was and his biggest payday was the millennium and i said you know although it's pulled back a little bit and now we have covid you know you have these people making astounding numbers amount amount of money in vegas i said you know can you make that kind of money goes i can't make that kind of money i would need to reinvent myself if we look at mtv they had the original vjs and they fired them everybody was weeping they realized you had to stay with the demo otherwise you'd die which is what happened to rolling stone okay so do you service the audience that is death okay you know the great thing about steve jobs was he was he didn't believe in research he said this is where i want to do this is where i think it's going to go once you're solely research will tell you at best where you've been not where you are going so if your business is to appeal to everybody and satiate them and not think about the distant future, that's one thing, okay? I don't really believe in that. So what I know, first and foremost, I'm a writer before anything. If I write something great, it does not make a difference what the subject is. I remember I wrote about uh, the coming of fall. My inbox blew up, okay? And the funny thing is, if you try to do it again, it tends not to. So this is all in hindsight. It's an evolutionary thing. 
People do not want you to change. But if you don't change, it's death. You become, I have this new book. It's going to come out in a couple of months. It's an oral history of 80s metal. This is something I know really well. And I even worked in it. And you read this, you know, holy shit. This was 40 years ago. And these people are still living off of that. If you were an act, maybe you can tour playing the old records. If you're making new records, no one cares. And everybody is reminiscing. I don't want to be dead. So music drove the culture. Music drove the, uh, music was the canary in the coal mine for digital disruption. What the business wants to hear about is how they're marketing these worthless records to ever fewer numbers. And for me, it's the big picture. And just because there's a new record doesn't mean it's good. Meanwhile, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Now, I weighed into politics because, yes, there was an issue of whether democracy would survive. We could go on and on about these are, you know, the classic examples on this are David Bowie and Madonna. Madonna did it better, well, better commercially. She would change her sound. She did an EDM record, you know, Ray of Light, which was great in the late 90s. Sounded nothing like Like a Virgin. David Bowie artistically maybe is out, but commercially not quite as valid. You wake up, people are afraid, or maybe they only have one bullet in the gun. So yes, Bob, doesn't, but doesn't that exact say the point, the point I was making earlier, though, I feel like this is hammering that point. You're not writing about these things because your audience wants to hear about them. You're the tip of the spear. You're telling your audience what's relevant today because you have your finger on the pulse of those things. I would argue that you're writing less about music because le- re- music is less relevant than it might've been yes. 30 years yes. ago. Is that a fair statement? Yes. How do we make it relevant again? So you say it's not going to be like that forever. And well, it, well, it's, it's not going to be like the sixties and seventies, or if you look at in the UK, you know, a lot of that was generated by the hardship post-war era. It depends on the act. Okay. I'm going to give you one of my theories. I'll give you a couple of my theories. That's what we're here people, for. People always say, how come that act I love can't make new music that's great? They don't understand the emotional thing. To be an artist, you have to take the road less traveled. Meanwhile, more so even today, that your friends, they have jobs, they're getting married, they're buying houses. And you say, when I make it, it's all going to work. Very few people make it, but the people who make it are not well-adjusted people. That's inherently how you, the, the mentality of an artist. And once they make it and they realize all the money and all the adulation doesn't fix their lives, they can't do it again. But in the 60s, when all of this started, there was a large middle class and no one ever wanted their kid to be an artist. But people didn't freak out if your kid was going to be an artist. Meanwhile, you could survive on a minimum wage job such that when middle-class artists made it, they had middle-class values. Good example being Jefferson airplane up against the wall, motherfucker. Okay. Today we have income inequality. There's a very small middle-class people who go to college. They know the score, you know, at the elite universities, when I went to college, no one was an economics major. Look at in my college. That's the number one major today. Okay. I want to get a job at a bank because they don't want to starve. I can criticize that they're wasting. Either you get on that track 
or you just fall through the cracks. Okay. The people going to the less elite institutions, they're studying business. I went to college. My parents, they didn't really literally didn't give, they said, study whatever you want. It's a good background for life. People are my contemporaries and younger said, I'm spending all that money. We get to college. He's got to come out with a job internships. We didn't do internships, et cetera. We found out who we are. So when it comes to music, you need people to, who artists who will say, no, it has to be my way. But when you get the lower classes with nothing, they're all malleable. It's like a reality TV. Forget the real world. It's a thing unto itself. First big reality TV show other than American Family in the 70s was Survivor. Everybody who was on the original season of Survivor thought they had a career. Now, when you're in reality television, it's a lark. And then you go back to Poughkeepsie. No one says, oh, I'm going to leverage this and, and everybody's interest. No, we're just having a little fun. And the other thing is anybody with a brain says, I'm not going to be on one of these shows. I know how they cut them. You know, it's going to ruin my career. So you have that bifurcation once again. So, Bob, another one more music question, maybe a big one. So we look back 20 years from now because you look, you look good. You look healthy. 20 years from now, we look back on the COVID era or the, the year of COVID. What does it do to the music? What, what does music look like coming out of COVID? It feels like we've been in a pause. There's, there haven't been concerts. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of new music being made. You'd know far better than maybe anybody. I'm assuming there's a lot of music being written because the artists don't have a whole a hell of a lot more to be doing right now. And some of them are going into studio. What do you think? What do you think? Does this give music a boost coming out of this? Because We've got all this pent up money. People can't wait to spend on debauchery and concerts as soon as they can again. Or are we stuck in, uh, in quicksand? What's, what what, is the, what does the post-COVID world look like? Let's separate it out, okay? One, let's the concert business. Concert business is going to come back roaring for a number of reasons. A, people have been home. B, there's pent up demand. C, those tickets have all been sold. Talking to Harvey Goldsmith, legendary promoter, the most legendary promoter in the UK. All of his shows, he said, you can get your money back. Fewer than 5% asked for their money back. Okay, Live Nation, uh, I think the 83 or 86% of the people didn't want their money back. So those dates are going to play. And when it comes to these big buildings, there's a limited number of dates. So if you, talk to, if you talk to agents for the last year, all they've been doing is rebooking, which is hysterical because I said, listen, those shows are never going to play. They want to hold the space because if you talk to people, if concerts come back the end of 21, beginning of 22, there won't be any available inventory for six or eight months. So there's going to be a lot of money there. What is happening on the creative side, first and foremost, with all the technology, not being able to leave your house was a minor impact in the creation of new music. Okay. But we are waiting for the new hit. If you look at the history of music, there was somebody from left field, but you need someone with the, not only has to be great, but with a different ethos. You know, the easiest thing to do today is marketing. I get people incredibly professional campaigns that are, but it's just the music that sucks. We are waiting for a great artist. That is what's going to turn around. And as you can see, all the bitching about streaming, et cetera, that's really gone downhill. So there's going to be a change. Now, I must also say, we in the music business were 
ready for a change every, every five to eight years. Okay. We had hair metal. It was replaced by grunge. It was replaced by hip hop. Hip hop is ruled for 20 years. I could do 20 minutes on what I think is going on, but is the landscape so diversified that it's hard to build up and compete with that? Or will it be like the old days? One sound will gain force. See, it's a cultural thing. People don't like to sacrifice. It's like we're talking about COVID at the front. Almost everybody who made it in music, made it in tech, were not the president of the, well, we're not the most popular kid in school, but they were grinding till their time finally came. You know, a friend of mine wrote a book about Dwayne Allman, the guitarist. He used to take his guitar to the bathroom. Now people write a terrible little ditty. They're marketing for days. Okay. So, however, they're still out musicians. I would anticipate a new sound would grow the business and we finally have distribution figured out. I hope you're right on that. We're, we're due for a new sound. So Bob, one of the best pieces of advice you gave me when I started really getting more into my own writing is you, you told me to lean into personal stories, personal, you didn't use the word lean in, you never would use a cliche like that, but the general idea was to focus on the personal story, the personal connection with the reader. You do that in spades. You tell people what medications you're on, what ailments you're struggling with, your relationships, things that... I, I, I'm not, but I definitely can see the reaction from the people who read the stuff that I write when I delve into the stories of my family and my kids. And why do people react that way? Why, why do they care what some person they've never, and it's funny because now I'll meet some of these people in, in business travels and they'll ask me about my kids and they'll ask me about my house I moved into and they'll ask me these things. And I'm like, how the hell do you know? Oh, that's right. I've told everybody all these things about myself. You do that, like I said, on a, at a whole nother level. Why, why do people respond to it the way they do? What does that tell us about the human okay, condition? You've got a lot of things going on here. It was an evolution. It's not like I woke up one day and said, I'm going to write about my life. What happens is you, you think about it one day, you do do it. And either you feel, this we're going back to print days prior to the year 2000. Okay. So a couple of things, and I'll get back to this. One, so much of the writing is horrendous. I mean, I get more magazines than anybody I know, and I signed up for Apple News Plus. And there's a lot of magazines that, oh, I can't wait. You know, I'll get Esquire. Everyone said, I just can't read it. It's terrible writing. So if you're a good writer, people will realize. Second, I remember interacting with this woman, wanting to have a relationship with her. And the ups and downs, she was a very difficult woman. And I literally wrote on a yellow post-it, honest, I need to be honest. And I meant that both beyond her and in my life. And what I stumbled upon was if you write well and it's a story, it humanizes you. I also say this now when it comes to records. I know literally people, I'm going to write a record I'm going to you know, try to make it appeal to everybody. First of all, if you're trying to appeal to everybody, that's a bad step to begin with, especially in a country of 330 or 340 million, never mind the world. Secondly, the more you make it personal, people can relate to it. I don't write this stuff. So, I mean, it's just astounded who you hear from and what stories they have. And But the other thing is, 
You know, there's a famous line in uh, Life's Been Good by Joe Walsh. Everybody's so different, but I haven't changed. People's perceptions of you change. I'm envious of you being able to write certain things because if I wrote those certain things, my inbox would go berserk. Okay. Everybody feels they're entitled to an opinion. I, they have direct access to me. You're presuming okay. that they don't, Bob. Excuse me? You're presuming that they don't write those things to me. I, my, my, uh, I don't have the distribution you do, but I certainly ha- get the angry responses every now and again. Well, let me ask you this. Do you get an angry response responding to something personal you said? Oh, not usually. I did have That's a- what I'm talking about. Okay. I did have a woman yell. I did have a woman chastise me one time for writing about my kids that she thought I was violating their privacy by doing. So I was pretty offended by that. That might have been the closest we got to something like that. You did that famous post where your uh, daughter said, talking about your last name, I love Dick. Okay. Right. Yeah. Imagine if you got an email saying, Your daughter's going to be scarred for life. You shouldn't say that. And going on and on. It's like, You're being honest and open. The person is literally turning the screw on the exact point that you did. Right. You could literally say, I was in a car accident and I lost my hand. And you'll get people say, that's what you get for leaving the house. Hey, were you wearing your seatbelt? You weren't driving the right car. Thank God you won't be able to type anymore. And it's like, holy fuck. But what also (laughs) happens is the audience perception of me changed. I used to, I travel a lot for business and I would report on that. People love those travelogues. And I saw myself as wide-eyed kid goes to, you know, London, Singapore, whatever. People won't accept that anymore. They see me as a big guy. I see myself as the same. So when I write personally, this is a, you know, I know certain things that will push the buttons of my audience and you have to try to write in a way that, you can't don't think about that. I mean, there are a lot of evolutions. I could write on go on and on about that. Yes, but personal resonates as long as it's not done to resonate or not to be phony. Just like in a record, the more personal it is, the more people can attach to it. All right. Well, on that note, a gimmick I've I've been doing that I've had a lot of fun with because it's sort of the way we roll with our stuff. Is I love to ask people like yourself a, a handful of what I'll call fun poll questions. If you're familiar with my, my weekly left sets knockoff, I do it at the end of all of them. And it's funny because if I don't answer them myself, I get angry emails from people asking why I didn't. So I'm going to ask you a few. Let's, let's get a little, little personal, but fun. Is it better to be book smart or street smart? Oh, absolutely better to be street smart. I could go on and on about that. Yeah. You, you know, know, I went to college, went to Middlebury College. It was just filled with grinds. And the other thing about it is, I mean, now things are crazy and people go to college and they're entrepreneurs, whatever. In terms of people who made it, who, you know, who rose above or impacted society, the woman who wrote the vagina dialogues I went to college with, and granted it wasn't a big class, but everybody else is a drone. Where I live in Los Angeles, one of the great things about music, there's no CV involved. I don't care where you went to college, whatever, everybody's starting at ground zero. I know some of the most brilliant people unbelievably successful who are not book smart. Well, but then you've got the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gates not to say they're not street smart. I guess I don't know, but, no, but Bill, they, Bill Gates is street smart. Well, that's for Mark sure. Zuckerberg got good advice. Okay. You have Roger McNamee and these other people said, Hey, don't sell it. B it was almost like the Google guys 
but they never brought in adult supervision. When it comes to Bill Gates, phenomenal businessman. Let's talk about two of the classic things. IBM comes to him and says, oh, forget CPU. I can, I can, I can sell you my own operating system when he had nothing. And then, of course, he charged all the manufacturers for Windows, whether they installed it or not. It's a very different thing from Mark Zuckerberg, although they both were not fully rounded people. Gates is trying his best in later in his later days, but no. Well, we're in the majority. Two to one, people say street smart over book smart, which is good, because I think you're right. Classic L.A. question. I love this one. Do you ever eavesdrop on someone's conversation at a restaurant? All the are you, time. Are you really from Los Angeles if you don't do that? No, no, no. What I'm trying to say is <laughs> I don't eavesdrop intentionally, but if it's silent at the table and it's boring and someone is talking loud, I will hear it. I do not go to a restaurant and say, I want to eavesdrop, but I don't say someone's talking loud. That's their business, not mine. No. 20, 26% of people say they know they never do it, which is bullshit. I don't believe it at all. All right, so the, you, when we did our Grammy show, you wrote something about me in a subsequent email where you said, I couldn't be any less cool if I had a neck tattoo. I'll never forget that. Or no, you said, I couldn't be any less rock and roll if I had a neck tattoo is exactly what you said. Well, I'm cutting you a little bit of a break now. You're saying it's your first <laughs> time on television. You came to LA in a suit. I was, supposed to be anywhere. Smart, I was supposed to be the smart data guy at the, on the day. So I was just playing my part. Okay. Bob Lefsetz, do you have any tattoos? Absolutely not. I would have bet a billion dollars. First and foremost, harm yourself permanently? What's up with that? Even if you get a piercing, whatever, it'll close up. I've never had a piercing or a tattoo, and I had to ask because I was 100% certain of it. But 25% of people have one, and many have more yeah, than that. Yeah, but you so. have to break that down. I remember when the tramp stamp was very popular. God, is that 10 or 12 years ago? A friend of mine. It's longer than that. Sophisticated. His wife went to the islands, got one. I guarantee if she went to the islands now, she would not get one. Right. Okay. The question I we everybody would have to ask you, Bob, because I'm sure you always get asked what music do you listen to in your free time? Here's the one I want to ask you is, do you sing in your car? I'll sing with certain songs. I mean, I have an aftermarket stereo that's, probably better than anybody who's listening stereo. Okay. So I have that level of quality and I play it loud. However, I will also go into the fact that Howard Stern is better than most of the music that is on varying channels, but I would be more moving in my seat and conducting, but sing in my car. Absolutely. But I, you know, I'm not the, it, I used to be more, but maybe this speaks to the popular music. You know, when you're not pulling up to the light and you look in the next car and the person singing, very occasionally, but not at every light. Maybe they're listening to your podcast. Mm. Bob, I wanted to ask this before I'm going to break from my, uh, from my, my uh, itinerary a little bit because I meant to ask this earlier because we just touched on radio. And, I, and look, there's no shock to you because we see it in our data that the sort of decline in listening to broadcast radio is pretty obvious. It seems to be propped up still by country music I would say probably because country music's more popular in places where you don't have as reliable of a signal driving your car around to stream music. But does anything save? I wouldn't agree with that at all, but keep going. Well, okay, disagree with it. Because I, my, I, I would believe 
I would, I would, it's I don't know. It's not about country radio. Okay. If we ask the question, if you follow statistics, country audiences found streaming much more than the rock people. You have the disinformation, all the rock acts saying streaming is the devil. Country acts, absolutely stringing, streaming. However, country radio is more than music. It's on some level more akin to what once was, although in a bogus way. The, the, DJs have personality. There's a culture which does not exist in many other stations. So you can really feel like you belong to the community. But the hold on that is, you know, separating. We look at the famous case of Morgan Wallen in that they dropped him from all the stations, didn't hurt consumption whatsoever. Well, but okay, but but to your point though, so I think what what radio does that streaming doesn't do is it can give music context. It can be the DJ who talks about it before it comes on. It's done on a station that creates a sense of community, right? Those kinds of things. Can linear, whatever, we'll call it linear, but broadcast terrestrial radio, does it survive? Or is are we just watching a slow death? Okay, they're going to wipe out AM. You know, Tesla, you can't even get AM. But this, if you listen to the radio industry, and I deal with them every day, they'll say radio is healthier than ever. Which, of course, you look at the statistics. You talk to someone under 20. You listen to the radio, they go, no. So let's separate between Sirius and satellite radio, pay radio, and over-the-air radio. First and foremost, you get it everywhere, so there's not an issue of signal. Secondly, you have 100-odd channels, so you can constantly push the button and hear a new song. They have certain stations which offer context. Other times I find that, you know, Occasionally, I'm into what the person is saying, but it's more, okay, here are 15 rock stations. I can push, 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 and it's what I want. But the problem we have, and I, you know, it's funny, some other people are writing about this now, is old people, baby boomers and Gen Xers, do not understand we live in an on-demand culture. Everything is at our fingertips. We don't want to wait. Apple. HBO, they dribble out episodes. Give them all. They don't understand on these streaming services. You only, you know, you want to make a big enough impact with enough people, then virality happens. If you spread it out, you can never get uh, get enough mass, whether it be in viewers or in people talking about it. Same thing in radio. Conventional ad radio playing music is only going to go downhill. You have to reinvent the format. Lee Abrams, famous radio consultant, ruled the 80s, 70s too. He basically says, yes, theater in the mind. There's a marketplace for that. And there might be. But remember when they launched uh, Apple Music and they had their Apple radio, they're going on and on how great it was. No one listens. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. Well, Bob, this has been awesome. I knew it would be. You're just, like you said, you're the tip of the spear on so many things. If, if people aren't um, familiar with, with Bob Left Sets, his Left Sets letter, track it down. Uh, it's a must read for me every time it shows up in my inbox. I love the fact that you cover such a variety of topics because it's a, like a little gift I get to open. Like, what are you writing about today? You're right. You're, you, 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 aren't, you aren't feeding to an audience based on what it is we ask you for, but you're telling us what we should be interested in. And that's an awesome place to be. Well, thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for uh, the inspiration you've given to me over over time. And and the way you write is the way I try to write. And um, 
appreciate that and appreciate the advice you've given me over the years as well. I, I will absolutely ask you back again sometime. So I hope you'll say yes. And uh, thanks again, Bob. Well, you know, it's if someone is both interested and intelligent and stimulating, I can talk all night. And I really appreciate that. Most people are self-centered, which is why if you ask them about you, they'll go on and they'll be your best friend. And they're uneducated. So, you know, it's like Fran Leibowitz says, I'd love to go to parties, but I don't want to talk to everybody at the party. So it's great you're asking these questions. It energize me. And I allow to give my spiel. I'm allowed to give my spiel. Thanks so much. I love being here, John. Great. All right. Thanks, Bob. I'll see you soon. You bet. Bye.